Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in Exodus 20. We're going to be focusing on verse 7. But as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we're going to read all Ten Commandments, I'll be, we'll be, I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 17. So you, if you'll please follow along while I read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can gather here this evening outside and in your presence. God, we thank you for the reminder that the church is not a building, but the church is your people. We thank you that we can hear clarity from you in your word about what you want us to do, how you want us to live, how you want us to glorify you and worship you. God, I pray that as we hear your word preached, God, that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts. Lord, that we would see your law new in our eyes and in our minds that we would delight in your law that you have given us, Lord. We thank you for who you are, for who you have called us to be. And we thank you for this time. We dedicate it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the most amazing things about God's word is how you can know a passage so well, you can study a passage for so long, and yet Sometimes God just brings something new to your eyes that you never saw before, even though it was right in front of you. So here tonight, I'm hoping that for some of you, if not most of you, 
I can help to reveal to you what the intended meaning of this third commandment is and how we are supposed to live it out. If you're like me and you've known the third commandment for a while, it says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. You've often interpreted the word take as to use. So it could say, do not use the Lord's name in vain. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 127 asks, what is required in the third commandment? And the answer is that the name of God, his titles, attributes, ordinances, the word, sacraments, prayer, oaths, vows, lots, and his works, and whatsoever else there is whereby he makes himself known, be holy and reverently used in thought, meditation, word, and writing by a holy profession and answerable conversation to the glory of God and the good of ourselves and others. This is a very thorough answer, but did you catch the verb use in there? His name must be holy and reverently used. Now, please don't hear me saying that it's okay to misuse the Lord's name. I'm not saying that at all. I wholeheartedly affirm and believe that we should not misuse the name of the Lord. But I think the third commandment goes much further than that and is much more broad than that. In the words of Ben, it's a lot more nuanced than we previously thought. So let me show you what I mean. And just as an aside, I didn't come up with this just through my study. I had stumbled upon a interview on a podcast where this woman had studied this verse, just this commandment for five years and did a doctoral dissertation on it. And what she came up with, uh, I looked into myself and studied through it. So this is the fruit of that. So when when we look at this commandment in the original Hebrew language, we come to the word take in English and it's translated from the Hebrew word nasah. This word nasah means to lift, to bear up, to carry, or to take. So take is correct, but it's how we interpret the word take in our own language that may have, that may be where the mix-up has started. So we read, do not take the name of the Lord, and we think, do not use the name of the Lord. There's another place in Exodus where this word nasah is used a couple times. Turn with me to Exodus 28, and we'll be looking at verses 29 and 30. Exodus chapter 28, starting in verse 29. In this section of Exodus, God is giving Moses instructions on what the high priestly garments should be. He's talking about the ephod, which is this big apron that you wear. Then on top of the ephod, you put the breastplate of justice. And on this breastplate of justice, there are 12 gems or stones that represent the 12 sons of Israel. And the names of the sons of Israel are written on these 12 stones. So here in uh, Exodus 29 is where we'll start. Oh, sorry, Exodus 28, verse 29. It says, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastplate of judgment on his heart. When he goes into the holy place, 
to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastplate of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart. When he goes in before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So did anybody catch where the name, where the word Nassau may have been translated? It's translated a couple of times. So at the very beginning of verse 29, it says, And Aaron shall bear, the word there is Nassau in Hebrew, the names of the sons of Israel. And then towards the end of verse 30, it says, Thus Aaron shall bear, same word Nassau, the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So Aaron is going into the presence of God. He has the names of the 12 sons of Israel on his breastpiece and written on, and the names are written on the different colored stones. And he is bearing their names before God. He is bearing or carrying the judgment of the people on his heart before God. As is Aaron is their representative before God, bearing their names before him. So we come back to the third commandment in verse 7 of Exodus 20. And we could read it to say, do not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. To bear someone's name means that you represent them to others around you. The picture that I have in my mind is when a woman marries a man. She takes his name or she bears his name. And now what she does, good or bad, reflects back on her husband, not just herself. Another way to think about it is a child that is born or adopted into a family. They now bear the family name. They take the family name and they represent the family to the people they interact with. They're building up or tearing down the reputation of that family name by how they act or how they conduct themselves. As a teacher, especially in a small town, names are a big deal. When you look at your class roster before you get ready for uh, school to start in the fall and you see certain names on your roster, those names can either fill you with joy and delight or they can fill you with dread and anxiety because names matter and how people represent their family that by their name matters. If you know the older siblings or the parents and you know how they are, you'll, you'll be able to guess pretty well how their child is going to be that's coming up into your class. When Israel entered into the promised land, God again gave them these commandments because they were going to be bearing his name to the pagan nations around them. So some of you might be thinking, how did we come to see the command as being about using God's name as a swear word or flippantly? And while there isn't necessarily a clear point in history when this may have happened, it could be chalked up to human nature. As humans, we want a checklist of things to do or things to avoid so that we can definitively know whether we are breaking God's command. I know when I'm stealing, when I take something that, it, that isn't mine, that somebody else's, I take it, I know when I'm stealing. I know when I'm coveting my neighbor's things. But do I know when I'm bearing God's name in vain, when I'm not representing him well 
to others around me. It's our human nature to want to oversimplify things so we know exactly what we need to do. Or sometimes our motivation is to want to know what is the bare minimum I have to do to be in compliance with God's law. Yes. Or the flip side of that, how much can I get away with before I'm in violation of breaking God's law? So in doing so, we may have possibly misinterpreted what God intended for this commandment to mean. If you would please turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in this section of the Bible for a little bit. Matthew chapter 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. We're first going to be looking at verse 21. It says, you have heard, so this is Jesus speaking. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Further down in verse 27 of Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. Jesus is not changing the commandments of God. Jesus is explaining what was the intention behind those commandments. It's not only murder if you kill someone in cold blood, but you will also receive the same punishment if you're angry with your brother in your heart. It's not only adultery if you sleep with another woman when you're married, but it's also but also if you lust after another woman in your heart. Jesus is trying to get his audience here and us by extension to see that God doesn't want just behavior modification. He wants heart transformation. He doesn't just want external dedication. He wants internal sanctification. Earlier in this chapter, Matthew 5, Jesus starts off by talking about the law. Look with me at what he says in verse 17 and following. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them to be called will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling us here is that he did not come to abolish or do away with the law but he came to fulfill it. He came to show this is how you fully and completely keep the law of God. That the law will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. The law is still relevant now. It's still here. That our righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus is reminding his audience of the true nature and intention of the law. It's not just a list of things to do so that God will find favor with you or so that others will look at you and say, wow, that guy is holy. Jesus was constantly confronting the religious leaders about how they obey the law of God outwardly, but inwardly they are dead in their sins. He called them whitewashed tombs. The outside looks clean, but the, but the inside, the heart, stinks of death and decay. So there are at least four, probably more, at least four purposes of the law. First is to show how holy God is. The second purpose of the law is to show how sinful we are. The third part of the law is to show that we need something or someone to make up for the fact that we cannot keep the law ourselves. There's a sacrificial system in the Old Testament, and there's Jesus, our final sacrifice in the New Testament. And fourth, the purpose of the law is to show how we are to live in God's world as God's people displaying God's character. And this is what is so beautiful and amazing about God's law. See, oftentimes people think that the law is this set of rigid rules that we have to keep in order to be accepted by God. But that's not it at all. That couldn't be further from the truth. Remember, God chose the people of Israel way before the law was given. When God told Abraham that he would become of the father of many nations, his faith was counted to him as righteousness, not his obedience to God. It's not our obedience to God's law that saves us. If that were the case, none of us here could be saved. It's only by the grace and mercy of God displayed for us in the son and his son, Jesus, who came down to this earth as a man, flesh and blood, tempted in every way that we are tempted. And yet he lived a sinless life in total submission to the will of God and in complete obedience to God's law. And he willingly went and died on the cross, not for his own sin, but for all of our sins. He took the wrath of God that was meant for us, and he took it upon himself and died a gruesome and horrible death, a death that we all deserve because we have sinned against a holy God. But because Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah who comes to take away the sins of the world, he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave conquering sin and death. And if you put your faith and your trust in what Jesus perfectly did for you, then you can experience peace with God and you too can be saved from the wrath of God's justice. One of the most sobering passages in the Bible, in my opinion, is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. You can turn there if you'd like or you can just listen. It's towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus says. Chapter 7 of Matthew, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's the one who does the will of the Father who will enter the kingdom of heaven. As name bearers of God, as those who have been adopted into the family of God and now bear his name, we are called to live lives of holiness and righteousness. We are called to know and to do the will of God. Again, not to earn God's love, but to express and show our love for God. We obey God because we love God and we want to show him how much we love him by obeying him. It's not an obligation. It's not a heavy burden, but it's a joy and a delight. It's a delightful duty to know and obey the commandments of God. So practically speaking, what does this mean for us? It means that how we live our lives matters to God. How we treat others matters to God. Faith in Jesus is not just fire insurance that keeps you out of hell and you can go on living however you want to. Faith in Jesus, belief in Jesus, giving your life to serve God means that you do just that. You give him your whole life. And that's what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian means belonging to Christ. He purchased us with his blood. We belong to him. And it's our life's mission to glorify him and all that we say and do and think. And that's why Jesus answered the way he did when the lawyer came up to him and asked him what the great commandment in the law was. Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And that basically sums up the first three commandments. God wants to be the only God in our lives, not just the first among many. He wants our worship to be for him and him alone, not to any other false gods, because all other gods are false gods. And he wants us to bear his name in a way that glorifies and honors him and that shows others his character. So if that's what God has called us to do as Christians, how do we know what the character of God is? Well, lucky for us, God told us. So turn back with me into Exodus chapter 20 or 34. Exodus 34. Here Moses is going up to the mountain to get the law written on the tablets a second time because he broke the first set. So he's climbing up to the mountain to meet with God. And here's what God says. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. So the Lord descended, I'll start uh, verse 5. So the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, 
forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So here we see the character of God. God is merciful and gracious. God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is forgiving. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin. That's the name that we have been given to bear to a world who doesn't know him and who desperately needs him. What this means is that we are called to display who God is to the world by how we live our lives. God is merciful and gracious, which means that we too need to be merciful and gracious. Mercy means not giving someone what they deserve. Grace means giving someone what they don't deserve. So at work, if there's someone slandering you or gossiping about you, you don't slander them or gossip about them. You show them love and kindness. God is slow to anger, which means that when someone frustrates you, when you're driving down the road, somebody cuts you off or is driving super slow in front of you, you don't get angry. Take a deep breath and you're patient. Or like when your kids, after you told them hundreds of times, don't take things off the counter without permission, and they do, and they make a mess in the kitchen, and the dog spreads a mess around the house, you don't get angry. You discipline them in love, not in anger. God is steadfast in his love and his faithfulness, which means that our love needs to be without condition. We don't love people based on how they treat us. We love people based on how God loves us. And lastly, God is forgiving, which means that we too must forgive. If someone wrongs you, you need to be willing to forgive them, whether you think they deserve it or not, whether they've even asked for it or not. Forgiveness does not mean that you forget the offense. Forgiveness means that you don't hold the offense against the other person. The debt has been paid. Bearing the name of God is an honor and a privilege that he has given to us. God has shown us what human flourishing looks like through his law. To close our time, I'd like to read from Psalm 119. We're not going to read the whole chapter. Just, just the first eight verses. Ben sent out an email to the folks at Kaleo, I don't know if anybody else, to kind of meditate on this psalm as we're studying uh, through the commandments. So I thought this first section here was, was, was fitting. So uh, Psalm 119, starting in verse 1, says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, but who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. 
I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can look into your law and we don't see strict rigidness, God, but we see freedom. We see delight. We see joy. We thank you that you have given us what we need to do to honor and to glorify you, that there is clarity in your word about how we are called to live as a people who have been called to bear your name. God, I pray that as we go out this week, that we be mindful of how we are bearing your name to others around us, that by the power of your spirit, you would give us grace and mercy and compassion and love and patience to those around us. God, I pray that we would be a faithful witness to your character. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've always felt that our closing was a little abrupt. So I wanted to kind of keep with the flow of things that we do at Kaleo. I wanted to end with a benediction. So if you would please turn, this is the last time I promise, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read verses 20 and 21 together as a way to close our gathering. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, and we'll read it together. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.